0: Welcome to Vital Talks Listen, the podcast accompaniment to Vital Strategies Speaker Series on Public Health. I'm Steve Hamill, Global Lead for Policy, Advocacy and Communication, and I'm joined by Dan Kass, Vital Strategies Senior Vice President of Environmental, Climate and Urban Health. Today we're talking about lead poisoning, which has been identified as a serious public health issue for decades, but seems to be having a moment on the global health stage and in the public eye. Dan is a longtime expert on addressing lead poisoning, both as Deputy Commissioner for Environmental Health in New York City, and now as the lead in Vital Strategies Lead Poisoning Prevention Project, which works in five countries to support governments in developing effective lead poisoning prevention programs. Welcome to Vital Talks. Listen, Dan. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I want to get into why lead is front page news, but first, uh, can we talk about this as a public health problem, as an issue? What are the harms of lead and how does it show up in population health?
1: One thing that's worth noting is that we've actually known a lot about the harms of lead for more than a thousand years. Um, And we would be in a much better place if we had heeded early warnings, early advice. We can get more perhaps into this conversation later about what's been driving some of the uh, problems with lead and its ubiquity in the environment but essentially what we face with lead is a set of harms uh, that vary based on the level of exposure and based on age so let's start with children children are by definition still developing and importantly their nervous systems their brains are in rapid development from basically birth until the age of five, and then it slows down, but it continues. If you introduce into that brain development lead and some other toxins, uh, we have problems. Lead behaves in the body a lot like calcium. And if you think about a growing body, it demands an enormous amount of calcium. So lead can be absorbed by the body into the nervous system and it causes damage. Uh, often irreversible damage. And it's manifest mostly, at least in high-income countries these days, as decrements in intellectual development. At an individual level, it's really hard to detect because, you know, kids are really different from each other. Everyone develops at their own pace. um, And we're not so sensitive to these small changes in uh, cognitive development patterns in any individual, but at a population level. If you think about what it means for an entire population of children to to lose an average of two, three, five IQ points, as imperfect as that measurement is, nonetheless, you think about major population impacts on the potential for any group of children to reach adulthood at at their maximum cognitive ability. Children are especially at risk, not just because they're developing, but especially in the early years, they're more likely to be exposed from any given source. On one hand, they absorb lead much more efficiently than adults do from the gut, just as they do other nutrients um, or or toxins. Um, And secondly, uh, they are, as I said, still in this stage of major brain development. But part of the reason they're exposed more is because of their behavioral differences from older children. Think about Toddlers, they're constantly crawling around. They put their hands in their mouth all the time, picking up dust, paint chips, other sources, um, and bringing them into their bodies much more than uh, older adults would. So, on one hand, we have children, um, and on the other hand, we have adults. And this is an area that is sort of much better known now than it was fairly, you know, more recently. And that is that. Adults bear a lifetime burden of lead exposure, and whatever they experienced as children is a bit different from what they start to experience as adults. And we know from very good studies at this point that the more lead someone is exposed to, the greater their risk of cardiovascular disease and early death from cardiovascular disease. Now, that sounds really scary, but again, sort of at a population level, it matters really more than it does at any individual level. And current estimates are that almost 2 million people a year, adults, die early as a result of lead exposure. And that lead exposure may be current, recent, or it might be the burden that they've carried through their whole lives from exposure when they were much younger.
0: That's shocking, given that, you know, the lack of visibility lead poisoning has as a public health problem or as a health problem. And can you talk a little bit about the pervasiveness? How does it show up in terms of global health? I know I, uh, I worked on lead poisoning prevention here in New York City in the 90s, and there was a very successful program. You were probably on the other side of that helping uh, do lead abatement. Um, but how does it show up globally? This is, sounds like a, a huge problem. So let's let's start.
1: Let's maybe talk about globally from high income to low income. So in high income countries, um, lead is now much less of a problem than it used to be because lead has been eliminated from most of the important sources that were once uh, ex- you know once explained the majority of exposure. Um, lead used to be an additive in gasoline, and that was uh, not necessarily globally, but it was pretty common. And it happened largely because of a very effective lobbying industry by the petrochemical industry to make sure that it was a part of it. Countries have eliminated lead all over the world. Now, there's virtually no country that allows lead in gasoline, but some moved much more quickly than other ones, the United States, many Western European countries. And as a result, we've seen average exposure levels really drop enormously. Um, Countries that arrived at a lead a ban in lead and gasoline later, they're beginning to reap the benefits of seeing major declines in exposure, but it's going more slowly and it takes time because uh, the lead in gasoline resulted in deposition of lead in dust and in soil. And we continue to be exposed just at lower lower rates and lower amounts. But that's not the only source of lead. Lead is in uh, pipes uh, all over the world uh, to carry water, typically from water mains to households. Uh, they were used for a variety of reasons, again, not the least of which was that there was a very effective lobbying campaign in some places to even mandate lead pipes. Lead appears in many consumer products. In some countries, and lower and middle income countries, it's very common in colorful glazes on ceramic ware. And if that ceramic ware is used to serve or prepare food then it can leach into food and it gets in the diet and then there's exposure. Lead uh, also uh, is used in uh, paint um, and many countries have banned paint but most of the countries in the world still have not and so lead in paint results in exposure from sloughing off, chipping, uh, from uh, children chewing on painted surfaces uh, and that to ends up contaminating homes with dust. So that continues to be an important source of exposure in many parts of the world. And one of the things that we're working on uh, in, many, in some low-income countries is looking, trying to look at other important sources. Lead, uh, unfortunately, is attractive for unscrupulous uh, people in, as a food additive. Uh, for foods that are weighed, like spices in bulk, it adds weight. And it adds color, uh, which can be very desirable from a marketing perspective. And it's a sort of disgusting, uh, sort of inexcusable practice, but it's quite common, especially in some countries. And it may actually expose or rather explain a significant proportion of some exposure um, that it carries through both for children, but also uh, for adults. So lead is quite common. Um, it's one of the most common minerals on earth, it's been used for industrial purposes uh, from the beginning of uh, metallurgy. Um, but in most cases, there's no good reason to use it. One other source is that's very important is that it's used in what are called lead acid batteries. These are the batteries that you will see under the hood of most automobiles. The Not the batteries used for powering electric vehicles, vehicles but uh, batteries used to start an engine. Um, and uh, for anyone who's ever owned a car batteries die they lose their effectiveness typically because they contain a significant amount of lead they have value in a recycling chain so they get recycled that's good on one hand because it means that lead new lead isn't being mined for the sake of this on the other hand most recycling in the world is informal it's in the backyards of 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 low income households or it's in a community facility and the breakdown of that lead um, is often not done safely. It's it, it's melted back into a, 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 an ingot, uh, and that process yields dust that can contaminate uh, a neighboring area. And so what we're faced with as a world is continuing to try to eliminate the introduction of lead into the environment, but also to get the existing lead out of it.
0: That's uh, so interesting. I mean, it's clearly a Big global problem, it's pervasive with significant health problems. Can, so why is lead suddenly front page news? Why are people suddenly paying attention to lead? Well, I think, I think lead has been in the news at various
1: points for, for different reasons. At this moment, I think it's the result of several things that have converged. One is, uh, and, and I don't think we should discount this, there is a significant advocacy effort to elevate the importance of lead. Uh, with the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluations modeling of lead burdens around the world, we now have at least some idea of how countries differ from one another or what proportion of children might have elevated blood levels. And those numbers are really alarming. Um, so there's, there's data out there. There are advocates that have been using this data to really point to this as a significant issue the more we learn, the more we understand that lead is such a significant contributor to preventable illness, morbidity, children's development, and as I mentioned earlier, cardiovascular disease. So advocacy matters. The philanthropy world has also played a role in this. You know, there's very little world uh, uh, global giving for lead prevention programs. But philanthropies have begun to take notice of this. And there was a recent report, for example, by the Council on Global Development that uh, really pointed out this huge gap between need and, uh, and uh, giving. Another factor that's going on that, uh, well, let me put it this way. Lead gets attention when we get past how anonymous the problem is. So when children, are known to be lead poisoned or have high levels. Parents get upset. Parents parents unite, and they organize around these issues. Similarly, in communities where there are contaminated hotspots, we call them, where there's high community levels of, of lead, when they find children through testing that are elevated, they rise up uh, and make demands on a government and civil society to do something about it. So that's part of it. Another factor, I think, especially in higher income countries, is it's really easy to test for lead. So it's easy to discover when lead levels are high. It's not a particularly expensive uh, test. Uh, In the United States, for example, it is routine that nearly every child under the age of three has had at least one blood lead test. And so uh, we end up knowing quite a bit. Another factor that's converged at this moment is that there are... Um, there's, there's, let's say, less and less tolerance for even low levels of risks, risk, especially for children. If you think back several years to the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, for example, um, I don't know how many people listening will know about this case, but in short, uh, Flint, Michigan s- started uh, drawing its drinking water from a new source simultaneously eliminated the uh, system in place in most drinking water systems in in the United States and many Western Europe that helps protect lead leaching from lead pipes and fixtures. And uh, the water that they started to draw was um, was, uh, more likely to corrode the pipes. So there was a big burst of uh, lead exposure in Flint, Michigan, and it affected principally uh, lower income families. Uh, in uh, less um, uh, well-maintained houses. So those kinds of events that emerge raise awareness generally and they result in uh, greater governmental action. So I think that's part of uh, what's going on now. And then I guess I would just say that the other piece that's really important is growing recognition that... um, that adults are not immune to this problem you know we have been thinking for a long time that this was a problem that was largely going away and now we know that we 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 pay the costs of uh, poor environmental regulation of stupid uh, environmental actions uh, for many many decades
0: yeah and i know that at uh, this year's world economic forum usaid administrator samantha power noted lead as a new topic or as a renewed interest in the topic of lead. And USAID is the biggest, is a bellwether for global public health interests. They're the largest financer of public health projects. So I was glad to see that there's clearly some momentum. And we've also seen on TikTok and on social media, at least here in the United States, there's this really you know, kind of crazy phenomenon where people are buying these fancy water bottles called Stanley water bottles. And there's a lot of concern that maybe the bottoms have been sealed with lead. So there's also this social hubbub uh, going on about it. And I want to ask about the consumer angle. But but can you also, I'd, I'd like to learn more about, you know, what's, involved in supporting a government in developing a lead poisoning prevention program what does that look like are there standard best practices that we can adapt across countries is it boutique for each country what does that look like what does that work look like in general
1: you, you know the the what what countries need to do is embark on a strategy for eliminating sources of lead so it's all about the sources it's all about and so what does that take one, it takes understanding what the sources are, and to do that, there needs to be uh, there needs to be testing programs testing of spices, testing of paint, uh, testing of water supplies, testing of soil to understand how bad the problem is, where it 's worse, where to direct resources, um, and what requires a kind of systems or a regulatory intervention, and what can require uh, interventions in the healthcare sphere, or even at the individual level or family and household level, so source identification is really important. One one important pathway to identify source is to also better understand exposure. I mentioned that IHME has estimates for countries all over the world for what they, what we, what we might guess, you know, average blood blood levels look like in adults. And children, but those are models and countries don't typically respond to models with the same urgency they do when they have their own data. So another critical feature of what governments need to do is they need to measure exposure. Now, they don't have to replicate the very costly uh, and arguably decreasingly cost-effective approach that the United States does where every kid is, is basically tested. Being able to characterize a population the same way we do with other surveys, understanding who's exposed, at what levels, what are the predictors of exposure? They might be household, they may be geographic, they may be based on income, ethnicity, the occupation of parents. Um, though Understanding those things takes countries a long way on this pathway to characterizing the importance of sources and then acting on those sources. In many instances, it also can prevent the expenditure of scarce resources on things that don't matter uh, nearly as much. And I think we find as countries, as more countries do these kinds of representative surveys of blood lead levels, some will find that it isn't this, it isn't as bad a problem as previously estimated, or the problem is highly localized, meaning that it's easier to act on it. So So, so far I've mentioned source identification and characterizing at a population level exposures and the risk factors for them. The other piece that's really important is the engagement of the healthcare system. And and there are two really important things that can be done there. One is to figure out for any given child, for any given adult, mostly children, um, should they be tested even when the resources are scarce? Are their risk factors so great that you really do want to know what their exposure is so you can act on it? And the two kinds of actions that can happen once you know an exposure is high is you get, you eliminate the current exposure, or if the exposure is really, really high, you may want to act medically to bring the blood level down in that individual child. Um, So engaging uh, the healthcare delivery system is really important, and it was really great that just about two years ago, the World Health Organization issued its first ever international guidelines for the clinical discovery and management of lead exposure. That needs to be implemented globally. It needs to be adapted to different kinds of health systems with different levels of resources. But uh, I think engaging uh, the healthcare system is really important. And to do that requires you know, training. It requires building up laboratory capacity for analyzing Blood samples, uh, and it requires uh, understanding how to communicate with the public about uh, about lead, so that they they act appropriately, but don't unnecessarily freak out either.
0: And you mentioned advocacy earlier, and I know that across our programs, empowering you know impacted populations, and you know giving voice to uh, you know to mothers who had kids with lead, to and and putting them as in the center of the conversation and maintaining political momentum is also important.
1: Uh, I, it's, it's critically important. It's a, it's a classic challenge we have in public health generally, and it's a, especially a challenge around these kind of insidious, uh, often hidden exposures to environmental toxins. Um, it's easy to talk about risk to a population. It's hard to name it. It's hard to put a face on it. Um, and. And to do that, one really needs what I was just describing. You need a system in place for really being able to identify them. But it's absolutely true. There is no substitute for really uh, putting a face on on this problem.
0: I want to wrap up um, by talking a little bit about individual protections. You know, we see on Amazon, you know, we're being targeted with Brita water filters and shower filters to remove lead. You know, are these products necessary? Should we consider them? What's the, what's the deal with lead removing products?
1: Well, you know, in general, the least effective means, you know, of improving uh, a society's health is to lean on individuals, right? Um, for one thing, it means that any solution, if it, even if it works, is dependent on private expenditures um, and access to those kinds of things. Uh, it also creates the opportunity for a pretty unscrupulous marketplace that will make claims of benefits that are that far exceed the, uh, the reality, or provide people with things that they don't need. You know, there's no reason to filter lead in shower water. First of all, there isn't very much in the United States. Levels of lead in water are exceedingly low, uh, except in a handful of locations and usually for uh, short durations of periods of time. You know, even a house that's fed by what are called lead service lines—these uh, are the lines that connect the main to the to the taps—even um, those studies demonstrate that running your water for thirty to forty-five seconds substantially reduces the potential for lead to you know, to end up in the water you cook with or that you drink. But there's no pathway for exposure from the shower, unless people are consuming their water while showering, which I I hope they don't, and I'm sure they aren't. So, you know, there's, there are some products that are really helpful, you know, in a place where your water is often brown from sediment, lead or no lead, you know, water filters can be really helpful for for removing some of those things. Um, But uh, but for the most part, that's, these products rely too heavily on individual solutions and often overpromise. promise
0: uh, Sounds like a, a, a solid case for collective, for social action. But what, what should we do as individuals? Either like, let's say, you know, I have two young kids. What should I do uh, um, if I feel like I'm worried about lead? What should I do as a person who wants to contribute to solving this problem globally? What can we take away?
1: Well, let's build up from sort of the what what you can do at a personal level to what we can do at collective levels. So, at a personal level, you know, their lead exposure in you know New York City and other cities, even in rural areas in the United States, is principally going to be coming from uh, dust, um, which would carry the remnants of gasoline depositions from you know decades ago uh to paint if your if your paint is uh leaded so people can get their test their paint tested um they can evaluate it you know as a screening tool there are these things you can buy online called lead checks that you know will turn red if there's lead in the paint at the surface of the of the wall or you can get it tested for really not an enormous amount of money and if that's the case then there are steps you can take to either remove the lead paint or to encapsulate it or to or or to, you know, make it a bit safer. Um, uh, Basic hygiene really does matter, Uh, you know, wet mopping rather than dry sweeping can be effective at reducing dust levels. Um, But most of these kinds of steps are are important really when children are very young and not when they're uh, older, because they're not doing this kind of hand to mouth uh, behavior all the time. Uh, If people in most municipalities, if people fear lead in their water from either lead service pipes or, or even um, solder used in their water fixtures, uh, the city uh, environmental department or water board will um, will do water testing, Uh, and in most instances people are reassured, and in some instances they they get actionable information to replace their taps or replace their lead service line. But moving into the collective. Um, I think what we can do is certainly understand that any reasonable source of lead or any source of lead that can result in exposure um, to most people needs to be eliminated. And so we need to demand collectively through local action organizations, through environmental organizations, through elected officials, that we do more to eliminate the potential introduction of lead. Now, this is a much bigger issue in low-income countries than it is in the United States and high-income countries, which are well ahead of the other ones in, uh, in eliminating these sources of lead. But that demand is, is really important. Um, governments do a very poor job of enforcing regulations in most parts of the world. And even when they're on the books, uh, products squeak through, food isn't tested. So I think demanding testing and the transparency of those results uh, is really important. Talking to physicians uh, can be enormously helpful because physicians can both provide actionable information to the individuals, but we want to activate physicians, nurses, community health workers, to play an advocacy role in this area. And that's a challenge because, as I said, the symptoms of lead exposure are not apparent typically in the indiv- at the individual level. You know, you don't know whether a kid who's having a little more trouble reading in school, or speaking, or, um, uh, or or playing is it's because of one lead or some other, you know, much more common uh, occurrence. So getting physicians and the health and healthcare providers more aware would be really really helpful as well.
0: Well, Dan, I want to thank you for taking time with us to explain a little bit more about lead poisoning prevention. I think I've left with greater knowledge that there's a huge global burden that's un uh, that's just being re- looked at, but but there's also really actionable uh, steps that actually have great return on investment if we do these steps now. It will help countries develop and prosper. Any final thoughts, Dan?
1: Well, I do think we're poised. Uh, to really do much more around around this issue and to make enormous progress globally. So I'm heartened that more philanthropies seem to be stepping into this area, um, including USAID and potentially others to fund the kind of work that's needed to really discover key sources in important locations in the world um, and to activate health systems to, to move on this. Um, I'm really excited that the Biden administration's infrastructure bill will pay for, subsidize the removal of lead pipes once and for all in this country. They should never have been there. Uh, and while it's expensive to remove, it's it's great that that's happening. I think that offers a model potentially for what can be done elsewhere in the world where uh, they, they matter even more. So I think this is a good moment. Um, I think there's a lot of requests for assistance. I think there are a lot of good approaches for cost-effectively understanding sources and levels of exposure. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. There's even good research going on that may offer opportunities in the future to really think about reducing the cardiovascular risks to adults. And so uh, I think the next decade will really uh, be very different than the last 10.
0: Dan, thanks again. Listeners, we have more interesting topics and guests coming on to the Vital Talks podcast. Um, and if you're someone who's interested in how global health can become more effective or, in today's, or, or enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Also, visit us at vitalstrategies.org. Subscribe to our e-newsletter where you can sign up for news tailored to your interest, resources and insights on areas like NCD prevention, environmental health, health issues like we talked about today and much more. If you have any feedback or thoughts, feel free to drop us a line at vitaltalks at vitalstrategies.org. This is Steve Hamill signing off for the Vital Talks podcast.